you make that sound like it's an easy question. Like, this is the starter question, but it's actually very hard. So that's a good question. I think uh, free will is... Free will is... Free will, I think, is... Uh, what free will is is actually a pretty complicated question. So what is free will? Hello, this is Free Will Matters. My name is Santiago Amaya, and I'm an associate professor in philosophy at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. I am the host of this podcast. Hi, I'm Manuel Vargas, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. I am also the host of this podcast. The human ability to decide and act freely requires that we think of ourselves as agents of a particular kind. We must have the ability to form intentions, to deliberate, to exercise self-control, plan for the future, and so on. At the same time, we are creatures bound by the context and the circumstances that we occupy. What kind of agents then are we? How is our agency shaped by the world in which we live? For this season, our guests will be distinguished authors and researchers working on the philosophy of agency. The philosophy of agency can be a daunting endeavor, but with their help, we will get to know better the what, the how, and the why of our agency. Welcome. For today's episode, our guest is Luca Ferrero. Luca is professor of philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. He has published extensively in the philosophy of action and metaethics, and he's the editor of the forthcoming Rutledge Handbook for the Philosophy of Agency. Welcome. Welcome, Luca. Hello. Luca, let's start with this. You have worked on a number of different topics at the core of action theory, but there are two of them that figure prominently in your research, rationality and time. Let's begin with the first, rationality. Can you tell us a bit about why you are interested in rationality and what its connection is with human agency? When we... Um, con well, when we encounter uh, different items, uh, entities, uh, we we tend to, I, I think, uh, divide them in between those that have agency and, and those that don't have it. And so, standard example, tables don't have agency, uh, human beings do, organisms have some kind of agency, and the mountains and the weather pattern don't. And one thing that we notice also, if we want to understand what is the difference, is that uh, we take that agents uh, operate, behave in ways that uh, can be assessed as being rational or irrational, being intelligible or making sense in way in which tables, mountains, weather patterns don't. And we explain then, or we try to explain the behavior and the conduct of agents uh, using uh, such notions as uh, you know, rationality, intelligibility, uh, and making sense. So in that, in that way, rationality is central to the very uh, notion of agency. Now, specifically for human beings, also we might have uh, more demanding uh, expectations, let's say, uh, regarding the, the rationality, um, and uh, uh, and that's part of what the philosophy of agency tries to do, is indeed to uh, have an account of what is then distinctive of the form of rationality of, of, of human beings as opposed to other agents at large. Another prominent theme in your work is the thought that human agency is essentially extended in time, 
What does this mean? Why does it matter? In a way, it's, it seems trivial to say that agency is diachronic or it extends over time uh, to the extent that we assume that any, any actions uh, will, if, if the action itself might not take time and be instantaneous, it's, in the, it's still related to a transition between two states that are at different times. And so it might uh, either produce some change or maybe sustain a certain condition. So this, this temporal element is, uh, uh, seems to be essential to all manifestation of agency that uh, we can think of for beings like us, they are temporal beings. Uh, divine beings outside of time, that might be um, another story. But then, having said that, um, there is actually more to the temporality or the diachronic character of agency, especially for human beings, because it's not simply that agency has to do with the transition between uh, uh, states that are one, let's say, adjacent to the other, next to the other, but actually that the what we pursue, we pursue over longer stretches of time. And there are two modes in which something can be done over time, over extended times. One is just what, what I call continuity. Uh, you know, you, you act at a certain time with a very short time window, and maybe that, does, you know, that there's some kind of repetition or uh, continuation of some activity of that sort. So consider uh, our metabolic processes, uh, they might be going on over time and might extend over years, decades. Yet that's not what is distinctive about human agency and its temporality, because we can also act with long-term projects in which the structure is not simply that they go on for a long time, but the different parts somehow fit together uh, into a, a larger, um, to achieve a larger structure. And this structure is extended and, uh, as I said, and has a certain shape and form over time that, that really matters. Imagine now, uh, you know, writing a book, or writing a dissertation, building cathedrals. These are not simply continuous process, but they have a certain kind of temporal unity. That's the term that I use. I want to ask you a question about how those two topics, rationality and time, fit together. One way in which rationality and time show up, or the connection shows up, is when we think about why and whether we should stick to commitments that we have formed in the past. Let's say yesterday I formed the decision to do something today. Does having made that decision give me a reason to act accordingly today? Would it be rational for me not to do what I decided to do yesterday? I agreed to be interviewed for this podcast um, maybe months and months ago. And uh, this morning when I, when I woke up, I reached for the computer and I started uh, the call. Um, now, this is, uh, on, on the one hand, this seems to be uh, a rather common, uh, almost uh, unremarkable feature of our, our agency. And yet, it's something that, it's uh, distinctive and peculiar, apparently, to human beings. There's no other a agents uh, uh, that we know of that has actually th this power. Um, and um, so this gets to the heart of what is uh, distinctive about uh, our agency, because indeed, it looks like that the, our decisions, our uh, commitments, and our intentions are not... Uh, they don't simply operate as causal mechanisms. So it's not that by making a decision, I just uh, uh, started some kind of mechanism that now uh, forces me or it, it, bypassing my uh, rational control at a later time to do something. Maybe there are some mechanisms like that, but that's not how decisions normally work. Uh, 
But what that means is also that when I, uh, you know, I'm supposed to act on the on uh, on the basis of my prior decision, I actually might refuse to act. I, I might do the opposite or or just not uh, um, pay any attention to my decision. That's actually uh, part of the. Uh, or my prerogative, let's say. But then how is it that a decision can be binding, right? If it's not causally binding, and in, in a way is still left uh, uh, in, in full control of the agent at a later time, whether to act or not, now it seems to be the decision might actually be superfluous and actually do no work. Now, here's where we tend to appeal to the idea of, of a reason. We say, well, maybe the decision is giving us an additional reason, and that's what might tip the, uh, the scale in favor of acting as we have decided before. Luca, the idea is that forming a decision about what to do in the future gives us a reason to act accordingly in the future. But isn't that a bit circular? There seems to be a natural way in which we might describe if someone is pushed to say why you're uh, acting as you have decided. He said, well, because the decision gives me a reason. And yet, as some philosophers have pointed out, most famously Michael Brathman, uh, that generates a problem, what's called bootstrapping problem, because it might seem that this uh, additional reason now uh, might actually bootstrap us into acting in a way that might ultimately be irrational. I mean, things might have changed uh, between the time of the original decision and, and the current situation. And now we are we stuck with, the, with our decision just because we have generated these reasons that we cannot remove? That's a problem. So how we can get around this the, while still exercising our autonomy and control at the time of action, while still making decision to uh, be somehow effective uh, or, or making some kind of difference without the difference making it potentially irrational that we follow those decisions. So that's a big problem. Now, very quickly, how we can get around it. Uh, in my view, I take that when we explicitly appeal to the decision and we indicate that the, that gives us a reason, it's because in a way we are trusting our earlier self as having figured out what is actually rational for us to do at the time of action. So we are kind of trusting, it's a kind of an, an advisor to ourselves. It's, that will be the basis for if we explicitly uh, appeal to the decision. But oftentimes we just act on them and that's perfectly fine. In that case, it's not that they've given us a reason that we appeal to, but there is a general psychological mechanism that we find uh, uh, acceptable and we uh, operate on it. And so there, there is, diff you know, in that sense also, there might be reasons to, ex uh, to endorse the working of that mechanism. Uh, that is another sense in which we can say that decision gives us reasons. So it's a little bit more complicated than uh, we, we think initially. Uh, Just to make sure that I understand. So we can treat our prior decisions as reasons for doing things now insofar as we trust ourselves as past decision makers of what was good for us to do right now. Yes, that's that's correct. I think that's the, the, the best account that we can give of making uh, uh, acceptable that we should pay attention and heed by default uh, the, what we have decided to do. But that is, as in many other cases of advising, you know, there, there might be other uh, considerations that stand in the way now. Now, for example, I realize the situation of change, that I might be in a better position to figure out what uh, is the correct uh, action that I should take now or the a preferable one. And in that case, it's perfectly fine to give up on uh, the earlier decision and just to cancel it. Uh, that's fine. 
You say a distinctive feature of human agency is the fact that we have plans that extend over time and that we fill them in as we go. We coordinate with other animals or other other humans. Do you have thoughts about how distinctive this is for human beings as opposed to mammals or other animals more widely? Because I would have thought that at least at that level of description, we would have been able to find primates, for example, engaged in strategic planning and in some amounts of coordinated action and so on. So in some sense, this is a question about how bright is that bright line uh, between human agency and other forms of agency. We actually observe, and and recently I just saw this amazing uh, little video of a crow that actually can go over eight steps in a pretty complicated instrumental uh, sequence. So clearly there is something of of that sort going on. You have to figure out the little tools and branches and move a little stone and put it away to, to get some food. So that's definitely there. So what is the distinction between then us and some of these other, I mean the crows or some of the primates? Um, I think it's in part is our actual understanding of this structure and the fact that we can articulate it. And so it's not simply that we end up organizing it, but because we understand the nature of this organization, we can, in this case, as a positive bootstrapping, once we, we are able to understand what it means to organize things over time, then we can use our understanding as a, as a basis for more of this organization. And so it's a, it's a kind of form of scaffolding. But at that point, that's really as, because we, we we like to talk about exponential stuff these days. It has an exponential effect, I guess. Once you get a little bit of that, you can really go places that otherwise are completely inaccessible to other organisms. Awesome. That's super helpful. So uh, here's a question that cuts in a different way, but cuts to the quick, I think, in some sense of, of human experience and human nature. So a central question for us is that sooner or later, we're going to cease to exist. To put it bluntly, we die. You don't have to be obsessed with death to think that knowing that we're going to die is going to play some role in uh, human life. And in fact, philosophers have gone so far as to think that immortal existence might actually be kind of terrible. Why? Immortality, immortality. So here's the response that we have. I think we are... When we start reflecting on the issue about death, we are really torn. Uh, on the one end, we uh, we realize that we we care for some kind of permanence, and we, we are worried about the finitude of our existence and also of the our deeds and the, and the products of them. But at the same time, I think we also sense that an infinite life that never ends. It doesn't really look much like our existence. It, it, it is something about it that is might be foreign to our understanding. And so there's this kind of tension, I think, whenever we start reflecting about the issue of death, to what extent we should both uh, mourn and, and be concerned about our, our finitude, but whether actually the alternative is also something that we should desire and we can even make sense of. So the, the, the question is, when we try to find significance in our existence, we are torn between finding both a finite and infinite life, potentially a source of meaning, but also of meaninglessness. So what can philosophers tell us about this? I think this is, uh, there's been an, an important uh, recent work by uh, Samuel Schaffler that pointed out that maybe against those that think that a, a, a finite life uh, would be one with no meaning, he says, no, actually, we need some kind of finitude to uh, find meaning in our existence because notice the things that we value uh, and that we cherish are uh, 
and the idea of success and failure, love and pain and suffering and the response to this, they are all uh, notions that depend on the some kind of possibility of loss and 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 this loss comes with our uh, finitude the temporal finitude of our life and i found that pretty appealing uh, and reflected some of my initial philosophical intuitions about the matter and so i went and and wanted to reflect a little bit more on this so in your view is there something that philosophy of action has to teach us about these kinds of issues I realized that maybe it was not temporal finitude that was really the key to making possible for us to understand such notions uh, like a success, failure, suffering, and, and pain, and, 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 and care, and, and the love and response. But it, we could generate them if the opportunities that we have to act over time are such that some loss always accompanies our choices. And so I imagine that at least it's possible in principle to conceive of an infinite, immortal life that might still go through these kind of losses and the pains and the suffering, but also the, uh, uh, the, the satisfaction and the elation uh, of success and maybe of, of, of of uh, uh, love and attachment and care. And so maybe we don't have to die in that sense so that, that our life has to be finite in the sense of a, ter a, ter a temporal termination to be, uh, for us to be possible to make sense and to enjoy and cherish this feature. And so maybe any, there is at least a conceivable immortal life in which we still have those. Uh, now, whether that immortal life it's in other ways possible uh, or that I don't know and I suspect it's not but at least I can see why sometimes we should consider our mortality as uh, maybe there's a loss so we, sh we should be concerned that maybe something is not given to us which is not it's, it's a much longer life and maybe one that extends indefinitely while still going through suffering pain and loss well thank you Luca um, I want to ask you a different question now. We've talked about the good things of our agency, the things that might be valuable in our agency, but I want to ask you now about the biggest misconceptions or myths about our agency. What is it that most people get wrong about our agency? And what is it that most philosophers of agency get wrong about our agency? I'm not sure that I'm in a position to answer with a misconception or a myth that is uh, shared by many or most philosophers. There's so much interesting work on the notion of agency these days that, uh, and uh, you know, a lot, there's so much variety, which is uh, a welcome uh, features from the point of view of uh, you know the philosopher investigating uh, the topic of agency. But there is something that often concerns me as we start thinking about agency. And I think it's that temptation to associate uh, the, the primary manifestation of agency with uh, change, bringing change into the world in some form or another. Now, of course, it is central to the way in which agency manifests itself that often is in the form of bringing about a change between a state to another. But I wouldn't want to put this uh, this as being central to, uh, to agency as such, because that might force us into focusing too narrowly on uh, 
certain kind of actions that have these features of introducing changes into the world, forgetting about the fact that there are agents, and this agents has this power of agency that oftentimes manifest in, for instance, sustaining certain conditions rather than changing them. And so I think that the, we should often take us be careful as we even start introducing this and right away using maybe simple examples like the raising of the hands or the you know uh, shooting a gun and triggering as if you know we get right away at the central at the core manifestation of our power of agency uh, so there, there is a there is a risk. There is a risk sometimes as we introduce the example that it seems to be uh, innocent. That it might actually skew us in having um, you know a somewhat biased um, uh, view of what agency is about. So, in other words, what you're saying is that sometimes we should recognize that letting things happen and letting go are exercises of our agency. Yes, exactly. And so, this is definitely. If not a misconception, is something that uh, the example that we use might induce uh, a biased view and potentially then a dangerous misconception. So here's a question that goes maybe in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, you're editing what's going to be the most ambitious volume in the philosophy of agency to date. You've been a privileged witness of a huge range of topics, approaches, and theories in the field. In light of all of this, what do you think are the coolest, most fascinating, really interesting, the, the stuff you're excited about, uh, these sorts of developments in the philosophy of action over, say, roughly the past decade? What I'm most excited about is that we are actually talking about it, that we are acknowledging that we should uh, talk more about agency and that we should be uh, inviting uh more people to reflect on it. So the, I think that the most interesting development is the very fact that there is now a recognized field of, of philosophical investigation uh, where a lot of people see themselves, a lot of philosophers, primarily working in that field itself. Now, this is actually an interesting um, feature. It's not that agency or reflection about agency is a novelty in, uh, uh, in uh, the uh, philosophical reflection. This has been going on since, since the beginning of philosophy. But somehow, um, the fact that the agency itself was considered to be um, the, the primary focus of investigation had, had been somewhat lost uh, because then the, the, the push was always maybe in the direction of the you know morality uh, on the one end and some of the problems that are more specific about free will that of course are, are a major concern. And so agency in that way was always like a stepping stone to s some other issues. But I think it's actually important that we recognize that we should reflect on that capacity itself maybe to be in a better position than to address this other question about morality, responsibility, and, and free will, and also issues about rationality as uh, uh, because of the tight connection between rationality and agency. So what I'm most excited about is the very fact that now we can produce this kind of volumes, of the, the kind of conferences and conversations in which we can see ourselves as philosopher of agency first and foremost and gather around, you know, our, our tables or our Zooms or whatever it is the way, or the minds, or whatever the minds meet to talk about that uh, uh, very uh, topic. Uh, that, I think, is the most exciting part. Thank you so much for being with us today, Luca. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's been uh, my pleasure.
Matters is part of the LATAM Free Will Agency and Responsibility Project. It is produced by Cero Setenta, thanks to a generous grant of the John Templeton Foundation, and with the support of Universidad de los Andes and the University of California in San Diego. For more information, visit us at freewill.uniandes.edu.co. That is freewill.uniandes.edu.co. Thank <laughs> you.